0: Hello, I'm Joel Nelson, and this is the Joel versus Arthritis podcast. Hello, and thank you for coming back to the Joel vs. Arthritis podcast. Uh, we have a very special episode uh, for this week, um, in that I'm joined by multiple guests, um, all people that I'm delighted to say I've known or spoken to over the last couple of years, or had the pleasure of being involved in other events with um so it's great to get everybody on camera at the same time um so welcome everybody we have um Jocelyn, we have sophia and ashley how's everyone doing
1: I'm
0: good you good good
1: thank you so
0: um so everyone's joining me tonight for a um for a special podcast episode on how COVID has Um, impacted our care or if it has impacted our care, Uh, this comes off the back of a lot of conversation that's gone on on social media regarding appointment times and delays and and, you know my personal experience which I've talked about a great deal um, hasn't been great in that I haven't seen my rheumatologist now since 2020 and I haven't seen my biologics nurse who we should be seeing every six months um, since September 2020 and I just wanted to gather other people's experiences um, to see, try and get get a bit of a picture of, of what the situation is across the country. Um, so we've pulled people in from all over <laughs> for tonight um, and we'll, we'll try and discuss that. And then there, I will be following this up if you keep an eye out in the show notes um, with a survey. So if you wanna get involved and share your experiences to help me sort of gather that that picture of, of how COVID has changed our care, or, or if it hasn't, um, and then please look out for that in the notes for this episode, wherever it is that you listen. So without further ado, guys, we'll, we'll, we'll get on. Um, just for the, obviously, we all know each other. I'm not so sure you, you're familiar with each other. But, um, but obviously, I've, I've worked with you guys or spoken a lot to you guys in the past. But for the audience's benefit, I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about yourselves. So, you know, where you maybe where you're from, what your arthritis diagnosis or journey looks like. So, um, Sophia, do you want to kick us off with that one?
2: Yeah, that's absolutely fine. Um, my name is Sophia. Um, I turned 23 last month. Um, I initially was diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis in 2019, um, October, so a couple of months before the pandemic. And um, this year that diagnosed, diagnosis was revised and I was diagnosed with peripheral maxial arthritis. arthritis. Um, and that's it. I have an Instagram account that I just talk a lot about all things chronic illness and that's where I'm
0: to job's some awesome content over there and again I'll share all the socials in the, in the show description so please check them out because um, everybody on, on this episode um, has something to contribute so thanks for um Jacelyn do you want to um, give us yeah. a bit of a rundown
1: uh, my name is Jaslyn. I am 44 years of age I was diagnosed just after my 40th birthday in 2018 with psoriatic arthritis that I had never heard of. Lots of people in my family have psoriasis. I don't have it very badly, but I'm the only one with psoriatic arthritis, and I'm also under investigation for some other autoimmune issues. I live in a tiny little town called Todmorden, which is technically in West Yorkshire, but smack bang between Leeds and Manchester.
0: Thank you very much. Ashley?
1: Hi. So
3: I was diagnosed at the age of... which was many many years ago as I'm now 31 um so I've I was diagnosed with juvenile idiopathic um arthritis which has kind of been relabeled as RA now I'm an adult even though it's still technically JIA um so I've had quite a long and very in-depth um rheumatology history um I'm based in Hampshire and Southampton um yeah
0: that's me. Thank you. Yeah, the um the name and changes for JAA is a whole different podcast episode. There's, there's a lot of depth there. So um, I fear your frustration on that one. Um brilliant. Thank you ever so much for introducing yourselves. Um, so the first sort of question I wanted to as a bit of a uh, I suppose, benchmark for, for people listening is, is what did sort of normal care for your condition look like before the pandemic? So, things like how often were you seen and, you know, were you well monitored? Did you have a route into sort of your specialists or clinicians if things changed? Um, You know, so if you fled or, or whatever. So, just to sort of get a bit of a picture of what that looked like. So, Ashley, do you want to kick us off with that? What it, it feels like a lifetime ago now, but before <laughs> <Yeah>. pandemic, <laughs> um, what did that look like?
3: Before pandemic, I was sort of seeing my rheumatologist every three to six months, depending on what I'd been like at my appointment. with would engage and the next one. Um, they'd got an advice line that I could phone. Um, it was always an answer machine, but they always just own it. Uh, call to listen to at 12 midday, and then we will get back to you either this afternoon or the following morning, sort of thing. So normally within a few days, I'd have heard. If I'd had to phone, and I am one of these people that own you phones if I am desperate, because I've just lived with it for so long, um, so I was seeing them, yeah, sort of six months um, normally, unless I'd had an education change. Um, so it was quite a regular contact, and was relatively easy to get hold of them. Occasionally, sort of, I'd met, left a message on the voicemail; they hadn't got back to me, but you phone again, and then all of a sudden they're like, "Oh my God, we're so sorry." I didn't forget about you, but you kind of just slipped through the net. Um, so sort of previously it's not been a massive problem
1: for me, but obviously that has massively changed now.
0: Thanks for sharing. Um Jessen?
1: Um I started my first course of treatment, my first DMAD in February 2020 as the global pandemic hit the following month. Um, so before the pandemic, I was maybe seeing them every six months, but because I was reluctant to start treatment, um, I didn't really need to see them any more often. So then when I started with the DMARD, I'd had all my appointments lined up to go in face to face. And then obviously the world shut down and the hospital contacted us and said, All oh, your appointments are going to become telephone appointments. Um, the way the system works at the hospital in the health authority that I'm in we ring up and make an appointment for them to make us, give us a call. We don't have the, like Ashley was just saying, the the helpline, they they got rid of that. Um, So anytime I had any problems, I'd ring up the the, the big appointment line and they would say, someone can ring you tomorrow. And they always did. Um, I've spoke to my rheumatology nurses probably every month. I have seen, because I started Biologics last year, and for that, I had to do a few face-to-face things and go and get some extra special blood tests done at the hospital. And um, on the fo- I think it's the 4th of February, I've got my first face-to-face appointment with my consultant since 2020. So I, I'm one of the very few people that don't think that my care has suffered. Um, but I think that's more luck than circumstance in the fact of just where we live.
0: that's brilliant that's reassuring as well to know that it isn't across the board no Um, and I'd like to think those that are maybe newer diagnosed are getting prioritized I that's kind of one of the reasons why I haven't chased too much Mm -hmm. because a bit like Ashley I've had this since I was a kid and and you don't ask for help after a while until you because you have so many experiences to look back on you think well it wasn't as bad as that flare I won't I won't call it in (laughs) so but you do that in the hope that you know those that need help are getting that that priority treatment you know thank you for sharing that and Sophia yourself
2: um so I had I got diagnosed three months before um January 2020 so when the pandemic hit um so my first face-to-face appointment I had uh, that's when I got diagnosed um it did take a while for me to even get to that appointment but that was more Because of issues regarding my local GP. I don't, I don't, I think, I'd like to think that that was more personal, more luck than it being a systematic issue. Um, And then I had my second appointment in January, um, where I got booked in for an MRI because I'd already started having back pain, but that was written off as, um, again, it might have been a mechanical issue. Um, And then um, I started methotrexate. Um, the injections in March of 2020. And between January 2020 um, and November of last year, um, I'd only seen my rheumatologist twice. So the January and then I had an appointment actually November 2021. And in between all of that, um, my diagnosis got changed. And um, I started a biologic and I stopped methotrexate I started another medicine so um, some of that again we also have the nurses helpline um, at our local hospital so um, I did use that again at, at the beginning I was quite reluctant I you know I've always been someone who um, not that I have a big ego but I find it hard to ask for help so at the beginning I just used to just take a bunch of painkillers and just try and deal with it but um, it got really tough so I did start using the nurse's helpline and as more and more complications started to happen for me, so I started getting um, issues with like costochondritis and more joints were affected and my back started hurting, um, I think they, they kind of could tell that I wasn't not a normal patient but something something else was happening so they would then just give me appointments with the rheumatologist as opposed to giving me appointments with the nurse by the phone which was really helpful um but I did again so a lot of the times I did actually slip through the cracks and I'd leave I'd have to leave multiple messages to actually get an appointment which was quite frustrating at times um but I don't know what normal care really looks like um because a lot of the time that I've been diagnosed um there's been COVID about so that
0: must be really difficult especially with things like AS and axial spondyloarthritis. oh that's amazing I- I think I said that right. <laughs> you know, I, I think on average, there's like a seven-year diagnosis Wait for that. And, and I had, I was diagnosed with AS at 14, and then I found out in my 30s that that was no longer the case, you know. Um, and so I've, I've been through all the talks and all the measures and the checks and everything you have to do for, for that sort of condition. And, and it's full on. So, um, I, yeah, I can't imagine how that's how that's felt. It's amazing as well that you've got such a positive voice um, online in the community, with those experiences I haven't now known that that's that's a credit to you (laughs) Um,
2: (laughs) thank you
0: but yeah the the biologics advice line is a is a was a game changer for me and I think that was probably the first thing I noticed changing you know it was if you had an issue you left a voicemail you got a call back by the end of the day so then when suddenly that stopped getting answered or nobody called back that was that was a big turning point which kind of leads me on to sort of what does your care look like now I know some of you have kind of hinted at it already so Jasmine, this might be a short one for you because it sounds like yeah, things it's haven't. just the same. <laughs> it's yeah. exactly the same, yeah.
1: It's just the same. Um, I will say that when we request a call back from the nurses, um, more than once, one of them has mentioned to me how overstretched they are and apologised for, say, the appointment slot was one till five and they've rung at like 10 to five. And said, I'm so sorry you've been hanging around all afternoon for us. So I know they are underfunded, I know they are understaffed. But I, um, I've not slipped through the cracks yet, so um, touch wood, I have there, touch wood. Um, so yeah, it's not really changed at all, but like Sophia, I didn't really have a big picture of what DMADs and biologics were before the, um, before the pandemic. I was just basically dodging any suggestions of drugs that sounded scary for the two years before that.
0: No, thank you for sharing, and um, I think... It's important you touched on something there that I think is importantly worth saying, because sometimes people perceive when I'm doing like the awareness stuff is that it's it's moaning and complaining. I, I work in the NHS as I know I'm not the only one on the call that does. And, um, and there is a genuine part of me as well of concern, you know, because they take my biologics nurse, my rheumatologist, some of those guys have been in my life since I was 13, mm-hmm. 14. I've, planned starting a family with them i've planned when you know things like marriages and that all went by them which is just crazy but they were a key part of your like almost extended support network family so there is there is a big part of in people like me that when they have gone AWOL there is genuine concern you know i think sometimes people think it's all jumping up and down and shouting and complaining but there is genuine concern Mm -hmm. because i've shared so much with these people so when they suddenly have gone and having a foot on the inside of the nhs I know how much rheumatology was lent on, especially in the first year of the pandemic, because of the chest complications and the inflammation and things like that. And the last conversation I had with my biologics, she was terrified. She was terrified about being reassigned. And I haven't heard from her since. And, and you know, so you, you worry, you know, with all the, the horror stories, you worry. So I think that's just an important point. Um, before we crack on, I just want to chuck in there that, know a lot of us do have long-term relationships um with our clinicians so when we say that we haven't heard from them in so long yes we worry about our future and our health and long-term damage there is also definitely an element there that we worry about them as human beings as well um ashley how how has yours changed i get the impression yours is probably significantly different (laughs) (laughs)
3: um So when the pandemic first hit, I was on no medication because I'd literally just given birth. Um, Four days before lockdown hit, I had a baby. Wasn't well planned. Um, And luckily for the first few months of that, I was riding on my pregnancy hormones and I was loving life. It's probably the best I've ever felt in my life. And then obviously they wore off and I sort of contact rheumatoid, just say, look, my pain's coming back, my swelling, the stiffness everything's starting to come back so I want to try and get on top of it quick can I go back on some medication heard nothing I contacted multiple times and had nothing and in the end I was like leaving almost daily voicemails going look I'm struggling to care for my baby now this is not acceptable I need help still got nothing and as much as I hated to do it I did go to PALS and put a complaint in just simply saying of my other half works uh, for an NHS. He is not home because he's working and I can't care for my own baby because you guys are just not getting back to me. Um, And fair play to rheumatology, they literally got back to me the following day. It's a nurse that, similar to you, Joel, I've known since I was about 10 and she was so apologetic. I was like, look, I, I get it. But at the same time, working for the NHS myself, I've got that little conflicted head of, I know how busy the NHS is, but from a patient point of view, this isn't fair and not acceptable. Um, so I eventually saw a consultant who, also they just prescribed me some uh, meds over the phone, had that, they didn't work. So I tried again to contact them to say, I've been on them for nearly a year, this is not working. I need either different meds or a different combination. Again, absolutely nothing. Um, That took me a while to get hold of them, but I didn't require PALS. Um, Finally saw the consultant who changed my meds yet again and put me on some home injections. They didn't arrive. (laughs) So again, chasing rheumatology over and over again. And again, I had to go to PALS to say, I've been waiting 10 weeks now since the moment of, you're gonna start on these drugs to now. So again, I had to phone pals and blah. I've tried multiple times to get hold of them. Even if they could just tell me the drug company, I can chase them myself. But they, I just had nothing. So again, and again, I spoke to the nurses that I'm, like, I'm so, so sorry. I hate doing this. Like I'm front NHS. I work in a and E. I I know how busy it is. I know how horrendous the NHS is at the moment. But at the same time, it's been two years. You guys Surely they should have had some sort of changes in systems or something to work out. COVID is not just gonna disappear. It's not gonna go overnight and they need to have like a more robust system of what to do for those of us that are desperately trying to get hold of them and get help.
0: There's a couple of points that I want to expand upon. Firstly, for anyone that isn't familiar, especially if you're not in the UK, PALS is patient advice and liaison service and every trust has them and their, their job is to sort of confidentially advise and, and so if you don't think you're getting the level of care from from that trust that you, you think you should that's where pals come in so if you haven't if you're in a similar position to actually listen to this and you haven't reached out to them please look into that because um they are a big help um and and yeah i can't imagine actually what that was like to go through a treatment change in that time as somebody that went for a treatment change as they became a parent and suddenly had a oh hell moment how do i care for a baby if i can't use my arms because they're busy with crutches mm. um that that was really difficult for me in 2019 but thankfully throughout the pandemic my treatment has been um you know consistent so yeah i can't imagine how difficult that is for you and, and it's really conflicting. you know for those of us that are working in healthcare nhs or, or something similar you know both me and my wife work in the nhs and it is really difficult to put your patient hat on and put your hand up when you think something isn't acceptable mm-hmm. when you care so much about it in, in the, the day job so yeah i, I sympathize with you because that, that 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 couldn't have been fun um, Sophia i think you touched on it a little bit in your sort of earlier comments regarding what does it look like now but do you want to expand on that a little
2: bit yeah so um between between march 2020 and um well now i think i've had quite a few medication changes as well and then because of my symptoms just kept on increasing when i initially got diagnosed the only the biggest problems that i had were like my left shoulder and my knees and that was it and now I think to myself, oh my God, that was heaven compared to, compared to how things are now. But um, last year, for example, um, in February, I actually, um, so quite actually, you know, a little bit earlier than that, in September, I had a call with my rheumatologist, the review, and I, um, this was, I think, six months after I started methotrexam, I said to her, uh, I don't think it's working, um, there's quite a few, like, my feet have started swelling all the time and were painful and quite a few other joints, so... Um, she increased my methotrexate and she said, we'll review again in February. Um, between then and February, I actually went to um, A&E because I, my chest, like my left side of my chest was hurting. And they said, we need we need you to go in because just in case it's like a, um, I can't remember what they called it now, I think pneumothorax or something or something. They said, we need to clear you basically. Um, so I went into a that day and I was there for 14 hours. And I was really scared because then there was no vaccines at that point in December 2020. Um, and, you know, I sent my mom home. So it was just me. And it was the day after my 22nd birthday. And um, after all in all, I was there for like 14, 15 hours. They just said to me, Oh, it just seems like your arthritis isn't controlled, which is something I knew going to Amy, And they said, this, Yeah, that, there's nothing. Like really wrong with you like you won't drop dead now so I was like okay cool I went home and I had the appointment in February and I basically wrote an entire list of things to my rheumatologist I said you know on every single um every single joint has progressed and it's gotten worse my back is getting worse I said you know my mental health isn't doing great because I, I can't you got I try to get in contact with you and it's really hard um so the first thing she's like don't worry you're still young like we'll sort this out. we'll sort this out you know I'm always here um but it was again really difficult to get a hold of her um, but she switched my me- me- um, medication I got off the methotrexate and I was supposed to start self she told me that in February I started self in May um because it took a while to get the test sorted out um so fair enough that's fine um but after I got the test sorted out I was ringing them almost weekly saying, where's my my prescription? Like, I wanna start my medication. I'm not feeling well. Um, I have work, like I have stuff to do. Um, I need my medication. And they'd always just say, oh, is it waiting approval? Oh, um," Because initially they were just supposed to send the prescription to me, because everything again was done via telephone consultation. Um, In the end, like I just said to the receptionist, I will come and I'll pick up the prescription. Can you just tell me if it's ready? I, th- I think at one point they even lost it because it was supposed to come. She's so like, definitely will come by the end of the week. And then it was the next week and it wasn't here. Um, but that was really, really frustrating, I think. And I would take time out w- during work so that i block time off of my calendar and I'd just sit there and try and get a hold of rheumatology just so I can have my medicine. And, um, you know, it was, it was definitely, that part was difficult. And I think after that, then... Shortly after that, I got the diagnosis, um, the rediagnosis, And they said, OK, we're going to need you to start a biologic now. And I was like, oh, God, if it already suffers alizine, which is a tablet I can get from my pharmacy, took, you know, quite a long time. I don't know how long it's going to take the, for the biologic. So I said to her, I said to the biologic nurse, I said to her straight up, tell me how long is it going to take? And she said, maximum two months. I said, OK, cool. Um, thank you for telling me. Um, and then they just gave me some um, like painkillers to kind of deal with the pain meanwhile. Um, but again, took took longer than expected. It took, I think, two and a half months in the end. And the rheumatologist called me um, how, while it was all happening. And I just, um, I just said to him, you know, um, I don't know what you expect me to do. Like, I'm, I'm taking the painkillers. I'm waiting for my medicine. And he was like, oh, have you tried like, you know, being active and stuff like that? And I just said to him, you know, I'm finding it really hard to even sit up, you know. Um, some days I work from bed lying down and my bed is right here, my cha- desk chair. I can't even make it to this desk chair. Um, and all in all, like that, that comment really set me off. I was really angry for a while because um, I was just like, you know, after all of that, all, all I just wanted was my medicine. I can kind of deal with, the rest of it myself but um that was really hard to deal with and that's kind of been I think the miscommunication not even miscommunication the lack of communication from them and then I just ask for one thing and that one thing is really difficult to get a hold of and then I'm getting comments that I didn't ask for in the end that I think that's kind of been what my cares looked like in the past and that's really yeah.
0: unfair for somebody as early in their journey as you. That's <laughs> like really unfair, which <laughs> kind of pours cold water on my thoughts of oh well. Hopefully they just prioritise <laughs> the 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 newbies, but you know that's that's depressing because I I know of people that literally got like not shielding letters but shielding advice from their. their rheumatology departments back in March I certainly did like literally four letters four pages of do not do this do not do that your life is at risk it was terrifying and then you heard nothing for a year and for some people they haven't heard from them since even if you know regarding your third primary jab you know if your gps missed that like like they did me and you didn't pick that information up from anywhere else you've literally heard nothing there's probably somebody out there who's still shielding because nobody's told them not to you know that's 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 the depress. i, I say it with a sort of smile on my face but it's that that could easily be a reality um and another couple of points i just want to add to, to what you says fear is that one it's a worrying trend how we're having to advocate for ourselves. Somebody is early on in their journey, shouldn't be having to do it like like that, like you are. And And the other thing is the whole take your painkillers thing. You know, that was pretty much the answer to everyone I spoke to through 2020 2021 I I took myself off them and and went through pain management um, therapy and and that sort of thing and because I didn't hear from anyone but through 2020 it was just keep taking painkillers keep taking painkillers and I went from taking sort of having this fallback one which I've always used since I was a kid to having another two on top of that and nobody ever reviewed it to say oh do you still need it are you still in pain and it got to a point where I thought well I don't I can't carry on like this because I can't be a parent if I'm you know half sedated all the while and and you end up taking it upon yourself and it, that shouldn't be the case and and that I think your story really worries me Sophia, especially because like I say your time from diagnosis and then you're having to knock on that many doors at a young age and I just yeah that 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 bothers me the painkiller thing bothers me the um, advocating for yourself and not everyone's that confident there's somebody that went most of their life hiding their arthritis you know I was a bloke and I wanted to compete and play sport and I didn't want anyone to know my weakness you know it took me a long while to similar situations what I think Ashley probably had being a parent to get me out of my shell that's a really worrying experience so yeah thank you for sharing that and I'm glad you're in a better place well hopefully and and the mental health thing is another thing that I talk I feel like I mention it on every podcast but it's just like nobody's doing that you go into your consultant appointment they ask you you know how you how your pain is they look at your blood test results they look at an x-ray if you're lucky enough to have one they never ask you you know how's it impacting your career how's it impacting your family what's your financial security because of your your arthritis so um yeah that's sorry i feel like i've got a lot more questions for you sphere but i'm not going to <laughs> that'd be unfair but um, yeah i'm just sorry you had that experience um so the next one i suppose i'll just ask openly so anyone can jump in It's like if that has changed for you, maybe not so much one for you, Jaslyn, but if it has changed for you, how does that make you feel? Like in terms of not just like right now and whether you're supported or not, but outlook or that sort of relationship with arthritis, how, you, how does that, how has that impacted that, those experiences?
3: To me, like, it's just ridiculously frustrating because despite the fact that these rheumatology specialists obviously are very highly trained, that I don't think they almost realise sometimes just how debilitating arthritis is. You know, I'm not chasing you for these medications because I've got nothing else to do with my life. I'm doing it because I genuinely need it. I am in agony. I can't move. I can't bend. And you think, I've got better things to be doing with my life than chasing you to do your job. And that like, I've... I do feel sorry for the rheumatology department because I know how busy they are. But at the same time, I work full time. I'm also a full time mum. I don't have time to be chasing you every day, every week for the same thing over and over again. So it is, a, it is frustrating from that point of view. And I so say it's that horrible having that two-sided head of patient and NHS worker. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not, the whole system just needs fixing and I think they do need to realize that actually the reason we are harassing them and chasing them is because we do genuinely need this sort of similar to you my pain relief has never been looked at I get my repeat prescription whenever I request it no one's ever checked it or asked if I need anything on top of it Um, and obviously trying to get a GP appointment currently physically impossible So you just, you get on with it because you have no other choice. Some people go to you, oh, I don't know how you do it, like working and this and that, because I literally have no choice. I either stay at home and don't work and have no idea how to pay the bills or I get on with it, I push through the pain, I push through everything that I have to because there's nothing else I can do.
0: On them pain like don't get me wrong, painkillers have their place and I've, I've had to lean on them through various flares throughout my life but you know when you think that the things that were chucked at me last year were amitriptyline gabapentin um you know controlled drugs and nobody <laughs> after a year thought to come back and say is that working for you no I, I don't know what day of the week it is and i can't i don't trust i literally didn't trust myself to carry my son down the stairs because you know in case i dropped him and that and, and nobody these should be short-term things but with no mm-hmm. reviews happening you know that, that's really dangerous and, and and that doesn't even cover the people that were waiting for joint surgeries and things like that that are doing long-term irreparable damage you know mm-hmm. I always think I'm not young anymore but I've always had that mindset oh I'm young I can bounce back and you, you start to notice over the years each flare gets a little bit harder and you don't go back to your sort of rest and sort of benchmark sort of thing um, and I, I can't imagine Sophia have, have us make you feel in terms of supported because you know I always talk about my introductory to arthritis. even though it wasn't ideal as a kid I literally felt like I had an entire team behind me supporting me physios and you know all these sort of things And I had regular hydrotherapy and pain management and all this sort of stuff but clearly that's not happening for you <laughs> over the last two years So, how, how does that impact your relationship I suppose with your condition and, and your outlook for it
2: Um, I think definitely is not easy I think um again you know I have had to the last the last I think is two and a half years has been a lot of chasing and I think I never realized I like I, I do have family who have chronic conditions but I never realized how much energy even takes out of you chasing as well like again um I don't, we don't choose to chase for medicine and stuff like that. And frankly, we never tr- chose to have arthritis in the first place. So, you know, if we need help and we're asking for help the at least that, that can be done is like if give that help if it can be given. Um, but I know like the first couple of, when I got diagnosed, it was my third year of university and I wasn't living at home. Um, so I literally came, got told I to have arthritis uh, Went home, packed my things, and got went back to uni. And um, I think it just hit me there that I like became really upset. You know, quite withdrawn. Um, I think for a, a while I just pretended that I didn't even have it. I'm still regularly going boxing and stuff like that, and my hands would swell up so badly after, um, which was a big mistake. But um, I think I never, you know, I never would have thought the impact they had on my mental health, like at all. Um, and I think that time in, uh, during the pandemic and stuff, I did have the chance to, you know, sit down and actually accept my rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis. I came to terms with it. I made that dedication. You know, I, beginning of 2021, I was working out regularly. I had to, like a fitness regimen Like I was getting back on track. And then, you know, it all kind of fell down again with um, my back started hurting and um, my regular pain in 2020 was about a two, three on you know, a really good day, you know, two, even one some days. But last year, like my old 10 was like my new three, you know, like the whole pain scale was reimagined. I don't, like, I thought that I knew, I understood my body, but I did not like, it, it threw the worst they had at me. And I think going through that um, last year, not having any much communication from my rheumatologist, pushing them for medicine. Um, and I think, yeah, there were times where I'd be on the phone to them because the letters that I was getting from them would just say suspected. After all my tests and they said, yeah, you probably have it. The, the letters kept on coming back saying suspected um, um, AS. And I just said, please, can you update it? Because... I I don't want my, there's so many things on my records that people say, okay, yeah, it isn't this, it might be this. I'm like, just put it on my record because later, if anything happens, it's so much easier for someone to find something. Um, But it took them again, a couple of months to even update my GP. And when I check my GP record, it doesn't even show that I have AS. It still shows that I have rheumatoid arthritis and it has my methotrexate that I stopped taking nearly a year ago.
0: you wait until you get 10 years in and they start recommending (laughs) drugs you've already tried and failed on because they haven't looked past the first note on the stack of papers that's that is the most frustrating thing
2: absolutely (laughs) and that's 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 what really frustrates me because it's like this is not even three years in and I'm already at my wits end I'm frustrated I'm angry at them I'm angry at myself um and I just think okay well there's so many more years to go like there's no end to this and it is it is, it is sometimes quite a depressing thought you know because I can the thing is I can accept my body and how my like how like how my my um like condition is and stuff like that but you know when I go to the GP and I say oh I have this symptom and the first thing they always say to me is oh have you spoken to a specialist I think you should speak to yeah. your specialist. Um, they know better than me. exactly. And then when I call the nurses, they say, "Well, have you spoken to your GP?" I'm like, "Okay, guys, I understand there is a lot going on, but I just, I'm just, I'm not here to waste time. Like, I actively do have to think long and hard before I call either the GP or the the, the hospital because I'm like, okay, it's gonna take a couple, it's taking time out of my own day." Um, But even that like it just makes you feel a bit like a burden and I know that obviously that's something that we all think in our day to day life sometimes, but to have it like reaffirmed in another sense is quite um, upsetting. That, yeah. that's my and, and the, man.
0: no no you're fine and, and <laughs> that's what we're here to capture those experiences and, and the worrying thing i would say is, is that whole going back and forwards thing is just it is the norm with our condition like if every time i went if i had a parent every time i went to my gp and said something hurt and they didn't the first thing they said was it's probably your immune condition and then you put on another eight to ten week waiting list and so that happened beforehand so i'm just like again i know i said it before but really sorry that that's your experience what i would say is that the diagnosis stage and your first prolonged flare I'll never forget that when I, my flare, I went through little flares and I had my first prolonged flare and you think oh this is never going to end they are by far the hardest once you come out of that you do get a little bit more resilient I'm just so sorry that yours has happened at the worst worst possible time but it is it is a fluid condition and I suppose just to bring Jaslyn who's been waiting so patiently whilst we've talked about our woes is that you know, it is a fluid condition. The goalposts move regularly and, and, it, and it must feel really reassuring for some like yourself that, that someone is there at the end of the phone or that, you know, or that there is a route into that. So presuming that's all still working, working well for you, Jacelyn.
1: I think um, I thought I was doing a degree of self-management with things because I was organizing blood tests and taking a piece of paper to my nurse and hearing all what you guys are having to do um I do do feel like and it's weird we don't live in a particularly affluent area it's you know majority working class my family lived About 10 minutes drive away, they constantly complain about their healthcare because they're under a different authority. Um, My rheumatology nurses check in regularly about mental health things and see if there's anything I need to talk to. Talk about I was offered counseling and had counseling for how to deal with chronic illness. That was before I started. All my like d and stuff. So yeah, I feel I feel really bad, and I think I need to get the spare rooms ready so you can all exactly. come and stay here. Yeah, I'm packing I, I think tonight. We can do it. We just I think, all
0: start crying, fake go and become your children, or something. Yeah, yeah, that's it, exactly. That,
1: that's. So yeah, I do feel a bit guilty that we're, I'm having a, a much better experience. And like I said before, you can still see that that's overstretched. You can see that the GPs are overstretched. You can see that the nurses doing the bloods, and then the rheumatology nurses at the hospital and the consultants, but they are still making it work. And I don't understand why they can't make that work in other areas. That sounds, seems incredibly unfair to me, especially listening to Safia because certain dates that you mentioned, and like you said about starting your biologic, my rheumatology consultant had said to me, January, 2020 on my phone appointment, I want to get you on biologics. We can't do it until you're fully vaccinated. And then gave me a list of things I needed to do that would speed up the process. So if anyone finds my phone and looks in it, that doesn't know me, I have so many pictures of swollen joints. I do look a bit like a serial killer, but <laughs> I already had those when I went to see the the biologics nurse. So it jumps that whole stage. It, they they got that, and you had to have the blood test to make sure you weren't wandering around with TB or anything yep. worse in you before they gave you the biologics. But even after that, they were like, right, healthcare at home, we're going to contact you, tell them when you want to start, your injections will arrive. And they did, just like magic. It's it's I, I seem to have had the polar opposite to Sapphire, and I feel really bad about that. It, it, it would be difficult. better if we just had an average each rather than a yeah. bad and a good, maybe. The,
0: the good thing is, it offers some hope because that is exactly my experience years ago when I went on to biologics. It worked mm. like clockwork, and I was given the right act, and I'd done all the tests. I think the bit that worries me is, and I know my experience is probably a little bit extreme, um, but I can't work out how everything worked in 2020. All right, everything was moved to remote, but I did have a face to face consultant. Mm. I had face-to-faces with neurology because I was going through some investigations there and then it's almost what like we got to 2021 and it just all stopped and that's the bit I, I can't wrap my head around as an NHS worker um, who sees how exhausted my wife was last year and is now getting to that point again now but ultimately most of 2021 kind of ticked along in comparison to what happened in 2020. So, mm-hmm. so that's the bit I can't understand. But the bit that worries me is that even that just arranging your blood test for me, that shouldn't be down to us. Biologics is a very serious drug. You know, it lowers your immune system. It's got, it carries cancer risk because you're not fighting as many things as maybe you would. Um, don't even get started on how many people out there on biologics don't understand it masks fevers and they shouldn't eat blue cheese and all this other stuff that seems to get missed so if you're not seeing that um biologics nurse every six months for a checkup and to do the you know the comparisons because you know say i go there and i'm flaring and my joints are all swelled up there's also that case that you shouldn't still be on biologics any longer than you should need to be you know because it is that that you need to give it the respect it deserves. So there's, there's two sides to that monitoring process. It's not just capturing the people that are flaring, like Sophia's and um, Ashley's and that. It's those people where it maybe isn't working or they need re-educating or the blood... You know, in my case, I only got two blood tests in the whole of 2021, which is just nuts because someone somewhere along the line was still signing off the prescriptions for those. Um, and, and especially... Realized,
1: sorry, Joel, I no, know you fine. had an issue with your liver in the past Mm -hmm. and I've had an issue with my liver so this is why I'm always have to get my blood tests and I I, I get them to even give me the numbers even when they say they're fine like I need the numbers I've got got, like targets for them I find it devastating that someone's not checking those bloods for you or like you say who is the person just going oh yeah he needs his biologic off he goes it it, it's it's unprofessional at the very least if not negligent Dangerous, yeah, dangerous absolutely yeah.
0: and to give you that context i was on beef since i was a kid probably 13 14 and then in my mid-20s in the space of three or four weeks my i think it's alts isn't it just shot mm. up into the hundreds that done that over three or four in the space of three or four weeks even though i was on it for over a decade so that's the bit that you remember that stuff and them experiences and my liver biopsy went horrendously wrong and all this sort of thing. And so in the back of your mind, you think, well, I was on something that's worked and I've been on self sales since I was 12. That carries the similar sort of things. It's not as potent as methotrexate can be, but it can still affect your liver. So even if I wasn't on biologics to go every six months, having my liver stats checked or checking that our you know white blood cells and our immune system hasn't been knocked too far down in a COVID world is just mad because how quickly i went from being perfectly well and well managed on me of trexate to okay it's actually starting to kill you (laughs) is you know is this worrying it it literally was blink of an eye and it happened and i had to come off it and everything had to reset and i was in sort of similar positions to some of you guys have explained where you're like our treatment change what happens now um and, and and i haven't been a picture of good health I'm, I'm for those who aren't seeing the video but i'm sitting here with a hat on indoors <laughs> so who knows what could be the cause and the trouble is when that monitoring isn't happening it's always in the back of your mind that that something might go amiss. and miss. and i don't know i'm going to regret this because someone's going to listen to this or see me campaign about this and stop my prescription and then you're going to be speaking to me next year and i'll be back in a wheelchair <laughs> but it i feel like i have a duty to talk about it because you know it's wrong to be on these drugs and not be monitored and no one's noticed. and someone somewhere is still signing the prescription that, you know, I, I feel like I have to make noise about it because someone out there will be going through what I went through with my methotrexate in my 20s and I was fit and healthy and playing sport and not know it's doing any harm until... It's really doing harm and, and that, that just bothers me so um but like i say it's reassuring Jason that, that that still happens for you i would argue though we still shouldn't be chasing blood tests and i've had to do that my entire life you know the amount of times we had doctors will ring you up and say well you're two months overdue yeah i've been asking for an appointment for weeks and no one's got back to me and, and my backup for anyone else who can still do this my backup was used to be print me the blood forms and i'll go to the local hospital i'm lucky i live near it i'll go to the walk-in but covid stopped all the walk-ins so i can't even <laughs> do that now um so yeah it's not it's not a good place but i thank you for sharing guys i appreciate it, it is sort of picking at a scab a little bit <laughs> you know because it hasn't been a fun couple of years um a couple of other sort of things i wanted to, to ask before we sort of wrap this up is that um what other impacts have um with sort of relevant for you from the um pandemic so not so much care you received but like did any of you guys have to shield has it changed has it impacted like relationships with non-chronically ill people like i know it certainly put a big strain with me and family and things like that when i i couldn't come out of the house um i was just you know i thought it'd be useful for anyone listening to this to to know what others experiences were beyond the clinical care who wants to um contribute to
3: that i had to shield and obviously I'd got a newborn at the same time so that was a nightmare being told you're only allowed to leave the house for medical appointments because you know you'll go outside catch COVID and die Um, and then when shielding ended I was like well I work in emergency department I've been told for the last year of my life don't come into contact with COVID because you'll catch it and you'll die and, I was like, and now I'm expected to work in a department where there is COVID and look after COVID patients. And I really, really struggled with that. Um, and I just sort of say to my boss, I, was like, I swear there's like some sort of post shielding, post COVID stress syndrome, because even now I struggle with it. So they've redeployed me to a slightly less COVID-y part of emergency medicine and to the minor injuries unit where in theory COVID shouldn't be. Um, but Eve I still struggle with that and I'll openly admit that some days I get to work and I physically can't get myself into work for the sheer amount of panic and I have to sort of talk myself down and be like right it's, it's okay just just get in there because once you're in you're okay um
0: it but... definitely is real by the way as somebody that shielded for a long time even just my first dog walk outside of the house mm. I was freaking people were keeping the distance and it still freaked me out yeah. I still felt like I was walking into the hedge or the ditch to keep the distance and and I've worked from home ever since so I've literally only talked to people like yourselves on webcam and zoom mm. and things like that um and even just Christmas you know it's your friends it's your family yeah people that you can be the most comfortable with and you're still on constant edge um so yeah. it did it did make make changes to us
3: even things fun. like just like going shopping like try and do Christmas shopping sort of go into how and I do sort of two shops. I'm like, I need to go home now. But there's just it's two people here. There's yeah. two people outside. I, I can't more deal pubs with than I
0: did shops when I went Christmas shop and I needed to be half cut. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and it, it was
3: together. one of those things of I wanted to push through it because I'm like, I need to get back to some form of normality. But at the same time, I just couldn't do it because I'd spent a year of my life being told you can't even go for a walk. And I live in quite a small two-bedroom flat to be stuck in it for an entire year. I didn't even have a garden. So it wasn't even a case of I could go and stand in my own garden.
0: I've had DMs from people who are in sort of like London tower blocks and things, and they barely had a a balcony to get fresh air, and that was just heartbreaking. And and what annoys me is none of that was really reported. You didn't see any of that um, at all. Um, What about um, the rest of you? You got anything else to add on in terms of how it impacted you beyond the clinical side?
2: Um, I, think, I can go next. Sorry, um, I was technically told to self isolate and not shield, but I didn't actually get the any anything from the hospital until I think June of 2020. So I kind of just stayed at home, anyways, because uh, I had a dissertation to write, I, like stuff to do for uni. But I I moved home, I think the week before the national lockdown, um, just because I was living in a. Cow block in London, and I just I I said I said I'm, I'm gonna lose my head if I end up being locked up in here by myself. Um, so I moved back home um, and like basically just self isolated, and um, I I I also worked from home, Joel. So again, you know, I I think for the entirety of 2020, I think I just saw one friend, and that was that. And I think this year, like sorry, 2021, I think I got a bit more comfortable. Um, like seeing people outside and then um, what I like to do is actually if I do make plans with people is meet them in the middle of the day when everyone else is at work or um, at school or something like that because I find that places are less busy um, but um, I actually had COVID in December um, my mum got it um, and then suddenly you know everyone started coughing and stuff and the first day I was terrified because I also have asthma, and I was thinking to myself, "Okay, that's it. I'm gonna die." Because that's what that's what we all thought, you know. That's what when we've been led COVID. to
0: believe.
2: exactly. I thought that's it. I'm gonna die. Didn't, not even gonna. Just turn twenty three. That's it. Done. Um, but it was, I think, and as morbid to say, like morbid to say it, but once once I had it, and I'm so grateful. It didn't. It didn't become anything complicated for me. But I think. I didn't, I, like, I, because I experienced it, I know what it's like, um, and, you know, so many of my family who have similar symptoms to me, like, like similar conditions to me, they were hospitalised and stuff, but I think, because I got my third booster in the month before, that really helped me, because I was be- I was much better than some of my family who are healthy, some of them were bedridden for days, and to see that was scary as well, um, but, again, I'm, some days I'm like, yeah, again, there has to be. I don't know what's going to happen in the future. It's going to. It just seems like time goes on. And there's variant after variant, um, and that is quite scary. Um, and I don't think there'll be another a, a, a normal to go back to. Like I've. I think that yes, there are some people that my relationship with them has become very strained because I don't see them in person, and I'm someone who, you know, I do have to sometimes see people in person to cultivate a better relationship with them um, but also I think I've developed a, a lot of a re- relationships with people I wouldn't have otherwise if it wasn't for you know yeah. online and stuff like that so
0: I often joke that the only friends I have now people I've never met and it really does feel like that's <laughs> even just at work you know when you used to go make a coffee and you'd bump into your, you know your work wife or your work husband you'd have a natter and that break the day up now I literally feel like I'm working I'm being a dad and I sleep and I don't really have any social and I've had lots of opportunities, but similar to what some of you have shared that I find myself pulling out at the last minute for excuses that when you look back at them the next day, they are excuses, but it's fear and it's an anxiety that I've, I've never had to deal with before. Jocelyn, what about yourself? And
1: um, again, please, please don't be hating on me, guys. But I had quite a quite a cushy lockdown experience first time round, simply because my mum, who was, I, I only have like my mum, my dad died a long time ago. She actually lives with us. So doing lockdown, it was my mum and my husband fail. And Phil just did everything because mum was vulnerable because of her age. And I went from being, oh, no, you'll probably be fine to extremely clinically vulnerable. Here is your letter. If you step outside your front door, you're a goner. Um, And it didn't seem to bother me too much. My incredible stepchildren were just down the road with their partners. And we did a lot of FaceTimes and Zooms and my family did. We did quiz nights just to kind of keep me sane, because before I was out. well, pre-diagnosis, I was out all the time. But um, my husband was literally been my everything throughout lockdown I couldn't have done it without him and also my three best friends that we they have stood outside my living room window they've brought chairs and sat out on the street they've brought when we got COVID at Christmas one of them did all our food shopping Um, now So today I had to go to Halifax, which is the big town near us. And I couldn't do it without my husband because even having had COVID, I'm still like, why is he not wearing a mask? There's no hand sanitizer here. I don't want to touch my card on the bus thing. So there are definite kind of ripples on that pond that have changed my outlook. And, and I, I just can't imagine Ashley with, with a brand new baby because throughout lockdown, both my two stepchildren with their partners fell pregnant. So they both had a baby each. And that was hard enough coming out of lockdown. Your cat wants in. <laughs> Why is it taken this long? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
3: that was a bit like, obviously, because my children letter didn't come through instantly. so Mine probably came sort of April, May-ish. But I'd still got this little newborn, but the world was in lockdown, and i take him out for a walk. I like, oh, like we need to—he needs to be out in the fresh air. We can't just stay mm-hmm. up in the flat. And even in the nice sunny weather, I was putting the rain cover over him. Mother half was like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "But someone might sneeze on him." And he's like, "There's literally no one out here. This is why we're coming out for a walk at this time because no one's here." And I was like, "No, someone might breathe on yeah. him or sneeze on him or I need to keep him protected." And it was not long after that, sort of when I had my six-week check and things like the gp they diagnosed me with post-natal depression and anxiety and i i genuinely believe if it had not been a covid world i don't think i'd have had that um and i think because you did like you, when you have children they it's right you get this whole other personality and I'm like this tiny human is mine and i will do whatever i can to protect this tiny human and god help anyone that tries to hurt them So yeah, sort of being out, then when he got a bit bigger, I'd have him on the carrier on my front. And I did get abuse from people before, like, you shouldn't be bringing babies out, Like, like when sort of shielding had been paused, I was actually allowed out of my flat. My child is very, very small for his age. And People were like, you can't bring that tiny baby out. I'm like, he is actually six months old, just doesn't look it because he's tiny. But yeah, I had people shouting at me going, what are you doing? You shouldn't be doing that. And you're like literally left my house because I've been locked in it for months and now I'm getting this so I'll, I'll just it really go back bring inside the, and stay
0: um, there. I really did bring out the best and the worst in people that, that was kind of my experience you know people you saw the ones who really had a heart of gold and the ones that mm. I don't know just seemed to have an axe to grind with anything and and I, yeah my heart bleeds for you actually because I had an 18 month old at the time and Dylan shielded with me for the first five months and you know mum was gone at all hours working in the NHS I felt awfully guilty because. I couldn't be there for the team I manage and then I ended Mm. up on crutches and then I had this kid that had spent a third of his life in lockdown and I felt really guilty actually worked out all right for us because now he's speaking Spanish and coming up all sorts because we got so bored we just found things to do but I at the time I was having a proper breakdown about how it was impacting him and and by the August even though Shield had finished I actually then sort of started having mental health issues and sort of got suicidal for the first time in my life and that was all because of that being stuck in a box was the thing I cared about the most in the world mm. and all I could think about all day every time I looked at him was how is this impacting him what a terrible human I am to bring somebody into this world and you know all that sort of stuff. I, and I the have whole been time... told that
3: by a random man of the public like parking in Disabled Bay getting the buggy out and someone's like you can't that's not parent and child I'm, like, oh, I'm aware of that disabled badge in the front of the car like, you've had a baby when you're disabled.
0: Yeah. yeah that's just sure I, that I did comments. make
3: quite a rude point back to him which I will not repeat um, <laughs> but I was just like it's got nothing to do with you like you've you've got no idea what my disability is
1: I thought you could have known I had a fake leg like, just just while we're sharing horror stories right at the beginning of the pandemic and I, I was a member of Joel's Facebook group and loved it and found it an absolute lifeline but had to come off Facebook. Because somebody said to me, somebody who knows me, who's like would class herself as a friend, actually posted on Facebook, Why are we protecting the vulnerable? They're gonna die soon anyway. And I was like, Whoa, I'm 44, I'm not going anywhere. I'm not, this isn't, it's not a terminal thing that we have, it's something that we live with. And that was the reason I had to come off Facebook, because I just kept seeing things like, Why should we give our lives up for these people? So go but, forth, be disabled and have as many babies as you want. Yeah. I'll babysit for <laughs> you. lately. <laughs> with
0: the NHS service you get up there, definitely said that.
1: <laughs> I'm going to get the guest room ready after, yeah. I promise.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we, um, that, that does bring me nicely on to my final question. It is a bit heavy, so I do apologise, but I didn't want to sort of break the flow earlier in the conversation. And it kind of leads on from what you were saying there, Jacelyn, and that... You know what are your thoughts on things like for me the thing that really messed me up especially in 2020 was that use of the term underlying health condition especially when in them early months march to sort of june july when it seemed like every deaths um statistic that was presented by either a journalist or the government carried this whole but they had underlying health conditions and, and i think i described a family at the time for the first time in my life i felt disabled you know for Mm -hmm. a long while I felt inferior I felt that I wasn't equal and and i would never felt like that in my entire life and this is someone who went through high school with with arthritis which I'm sure Ashley will know isn't a fun experience with kids at that age um so what what were your thoughts on that like do you think the pandemic has highlighted the risks and the challenges we face as a community or do you think it's caused greater divisions and I appreciate it's a very heavy question to end on so if you if you'd rather duck that one then feel free
1: that to me go yeah, for it no you no. go first Ashley I'll think about my answer <laughs> <laughs> I was just gonna say I think
3: the, the whole underlying health condition could mean thousands of things which was a little bit frustrating but I think especially for me like I work in a huge team and a lot of the people that I work with didn't have a clue that I've got anything wrong with me and it wasn't until sort of I returned from shielding and everyone's like, what the hell have you been for the last 18 months? Um, and I sort of said, well, I had to shield. And they're like, why? Like, if you don't mind me asking, and I'll explain. And they're like, you had to shield because of arthritis. And you're like, yes, because the medication I'm on strips my immune system. And this is like fellow nurses. And they're like, oh, I, I never realised, one, that you had it. And two, I was like, yeah, it, it's very different from... What I refer to as old people arthritis, like it's not the same. Mine is literally my immune system destroying me. So, yeah, that it's it is a big thing, and it is not just a little bit of joint pain and take some glucosamine and you'll feel better. So, I think that did sort of open people's eyes a bit more to actually the struggles we go through with arthritis. Um, but yeah, the whole underlying health condition like well, that could have been absolutely anything and it was almost sort of when well, the media was sort of saying it oh it's all right that these hundreds of people have died because of underlying health conditions and they were poorly anyway so it's okay I'm like no but it doesn't mean anything that they've got underlying health conditions i know someone that died from covid who was actually um one of the top 10 strongest men in the world he had no underlying health conditions and COVID still got him. So it doesn't mean anything.
0: You've captured my experiences perfectly. Like I, I did kick off that by saying sort of my negative ones, but the, the positive that came out of that was that it started to have conversations with colleagues and I traditionally hid them for years. I didn't want anyone, especially as a manager, I don't want people knowing that I've got a weakness. Or I've got this constant fear that will get played on. And... Um, and yeah, it is nice to log on to work, not walk into work um, every day, knowing that I don't have to hide pain and don't have to have a break and that sort of thing. Jasmine, yourself, what was
1: your experience? I think with me, um, it's been again my husband and my three best friends that have enabled enabled me to have conversations with them about kind of what life is moving forward, and because the pandemic has highlighted the fact that I take medication that makes me extremely vulnerable to lots of things not just COVID um we I joke about it one of my best friends is like six years younger than me and I and I always say you'll be pushing the wheelchair because you're the fittest out of all of us they're very good at making me not feel like a patient so if they're if we're out shopping we they they took me for a girls weekend away in October and they they'd engineered it so I it was wasn't near crowds so I wouldn't feel scared I wanted to buy a plant I would have had to fight them with knives to carry that plant through the streets of Chester because they were all so determined that I I couldn't carry anything but they do it in a very wonderful way of not making me feel like an invalid and my stepchildren are amazing at that and my husband is as well um we've even done some home adaptations I struggle sometimes in the shower so we had a very posh sparse shower built and everyone oh that's amazing there's a shelf for your products no that's a shelf for me to sit on when things get a bit too much and I can just contemplate things so um yeah I think pandemic has brought more understanding from the people that matter in my life there are plenty of people who who have judged me on things and I just don't have time for them anymore as harsh as that sounds
0: that's that's just really nice to hear and that's also mm-hmm. a great outlook so thank you for and sharing you,
1: you can all meet my friends when you come to stay they'll be your yeah. friends too
0: <laughs> <laughs> when we all relocate I
1: can't wait to tell Phil <laughs> when I get
0: <laughs> your rheumatology department's about to get swamped
1: but I going love you
0: <laughs> <laughs> Sophia what about you so how do you feel about that term and do you think it's, it's helped or hindered the last couple of years are our, our sort of you know our challenges as sort of thing
2: um I think it definitely I think reading I think a lot of the headlines especially like during 2020 and hearing hearing stories of people that I knew that had quote unquote underlying conditions but you know Mm -hmm. at the end of the day like underlying anything you know it could just be mental health that's technically an underlying condition I don't it doesn't make you more or less susceptible to COVID Um, but I think in I think what this pandemic the positive that it's brought for me specifically is the fact that you know I have a job now that traditionally I would have had to go to the office nine to five whereas I work from home and I've worked from home since I, I've graduated and as my health has gotten worse and worse I'm happy that at least it's at home where I have my chair that was custom made for me and all these other things that I have, a hot water bottle that I have on my back. Um, you know, I can work from bed if I have to. I think those reasonable adjustments have been a lifesaver. And, you know, for people for years that they, they weren't allowed to work from home because productivity and stuff like that, which is rubbish. Um, that is definitely, I'm hoping that it's not just because now people want to go back to the office that we're not kind of forgotten about and that's the thing I think the common theme has been like for some people the shielding period for us it has it has ended but I think not at the same time because that fear and stuff is still about and other people are going about living their lives as normal whereas for us it's not even if it's not about COVID it's the fact that I'll now have to go back to explaining myself why I'm why I'm using a disabled toilet, or why I'm using a disabled bay, um, or why, for example, if someone says to me, um, Oh, come on. Like, even for example, um, I went to a squat and lunge class a couple of months before I got diagnosed, and I just said to the instructor, Listen, I don't do um, lunges, my hat's my knees. And he just said, Ha, you've picked the wrong class then. And I think, um, No, I didn't pick the wrong class because That I can do something else, you know. I don't have to do lunges. There's so many other exercises I can do. Um, I don't know why you want to stick to the one that I can't, but that's that, but I think definitely the fact those reasonable adjustments and stuff like that have helped me a lot and I've helped a lot of people throughout the pandemic. Um, but also I try and make it a policy, especially um, when I was working, when people do say, Oh, how are you doing or whatever? And I did take a lot of sick days, especially when I was getting rediagnosed i just be honest that uh, i i feel like i'm dying <laughs> i don't feel well at all um you know um i've had to take this many painkillers to even be up right now and stuff like that and people do say oh um i never would have thought someone that looks like you could be you know like that could be your experience as well um, but I think it also humanizes um, the condition as well because people do think arthritis old oh, people like it's that long running joke. Oh, you get arthritis if you crack your fingers or whatever. But you know, p- people like that look like us and look like anyone can have arthritis, and um, I think that's something that I've been trying to do as well.
0: Brilliant. I, I think they're really valid points, especially the, the um, adjustments were under somebody that had access for the last five, six years to sort of flexible kind of work. And, you know, I always got three days in the messages of, oh, have you forgotten what we looked like? Or you got your feet up enjoying the weather. And, and then by day four, you felt that you had to go in, you know, and then and then you ended up being off sick the next week. So it is a big weight off my shoulders, and it sounds like for some of you as well, to be able to have those conversations in the workplace. And And the more that we have those conversations, the less we will be, judged on those sort of things and we remove the stigma. Um, I'm very conscious of time and it is it is late as well <laughs> when we're recording this so I'm not going to um, throw any more at you guys um, but I just thank you so much for agreeing to be a part of this. Um, it's been great conversation and like I say conversa- I, I bang on about it all the while but conversations change lives so um, if just one person listening to this um, feels more confident to advocate for themselves, or reach out for support, or or realise that maybe you know they're not getting the care that they they could be getting. Then 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 we've done our job. So thank you all for um finding time in your busy schedules and, and the evenings to um to to join us. And and as I said, um, for anyone listening to this back, I'm hoping by the time this comes out that there will be also a survey. So I would very much like to um capture obviously all anonymized goes without saying, but what your experiences are around the country, because I'd like to get a picture of, of, of this. Obviously, yeah, Jaclyn's had a fantastic experience. I think Sophia and Ashley and myself are probably the other end of that scale. And, and yeah, I'm going to be up tonight worrying about your experience, Sophia, especially so early on in your journey. Um, so I think if I can do anything um, with my very small voice, I'll try and capture that information. Um, So if you listen to this podcast, look in the show notes, there should be a link there to a survey. Um, Just let me know your experiences, what it looked like before, what it looked like afterwards. It shouldn't take you no more than five, 10 minutes. and I promise I'll do everything I can to make use of that information and start conversations at much higher levels than than us mere mortals <laughs> on this this call today. So um thank you so much for joining me, guys. Thank you very so much for listening. Um don't forget to um subscribe and leave a review wherever it is that you're listening to this on. It makes a huge difference in a very busy crowded world um for people to find us and ultimately that's the that's the goal here for for people to find our stories so they don't feel so alone or it empowers them to to share their story so um please um please do that and then you'll get notified next time a new podcast episode is released um but for me and i'm sure everybody on the call thank you so much for joining us